श्री पॉल श्री हरियाणवी लेडीज एंड जेंटलमैन इट इज ओनली अप्रोप्रिएट दैट इन द क्लोजिंग मंथ्स ऑफ द सेंचुरी वी रिमेंबर एन ऑनर सरदार वल्लभ भाई पटेल इट वॉज सरदार मोर देन एनी बॉडी एल्स हु बिल्ट द मॉडर्न इंडियन नेशन स्टेट इन द ट्वेंटियथ सेंचुरी particularly through his stewardship of the home ministry during those momentous times of 1947-50 in the new century will be of great significance as we move forward to achieve the unfulfilled aspirations of our republic the key question is how will india survive and prevail in a world where market forces military power and anti-democratic impulses are alive and strong the achievements of sardar both as a leader of the government and our people are instructive in reminding us both of the capabilities of our people and the constructive role of leadership in building a powerful india ballabhai patel returned to india in 1913 from england where he obtained a degree in law and began legal practice at ahmedabad gandhi ji returned to india in 1915 and set up his ashram in ahmedabad ballabhai used to go to gujarat club in the evening to play bridge public life at that time in india was largely confined to the lawyer class gandhi ji desirous of having contact with persons of eminence in ahmedabad also visited gujarat club once or twice to meet people and to explain to them his ideas about satyagraha patel then took little notice of gandhi ji it was only after the non violent resistance offered by gandhi ji in champaran in bihar that people like ballabhai patel were attracted towards gandhi ji subsequently they worked together for the remaining years of their lives yet the 16 months sardar spent with mahatma at yerwada jail was indeed unique as mahadev desai who was also in yerwada jail at that time records and i quote his affection for the mahatma found expression in numerous deeds of service preparing gandhi ji's toothbrush of neem twigs every day squeezing lemons as a drink for him taking down or copying some of the mahatma's letters and so forth it was reflected too in patel's decision to deprive himself for a period of tea and rice he was fond of both but wanted as he told mahadev to eat exactly what bapu did the affection was reciprocal for gandhi thinking of ballabhai and mahadev both instructed the latter to place orders for a cooker rice and dal again finding that mosquitoes were troubling ballabhai gandhi wrote a note to the jailer suggesting that he get a mosquito net at once unquote an extraordinary feature of sardar was his ability to combine roles that are usually filled by different individuals having different training and contrasting sensibilities he was an outstanding freedom fighter a rare person who built and managed the congress party and an able administrator who unified india at a time of great uncertainty within the country it is my belief that at some point of time in our future history there will be poets and authors who would write about various dimensions of india's freedom struggle in the same manner that the subject of the ramayana and the mahabharata have been treated by balmik vyas tulsidas and kambar in such an epic sardar patel would emerge as a statesman of great standing vision and integrity in fact his contribution in building a new india is a legend that is inspiring to students of indian history 
It is rightly believed that Sardar Patel required barely six days to conclude the police action in Hyderabad and took another six hours to conclude agreements with each of the remaining 561 princes of India. Rare is the statesman who has the ability to blend both the experience of action and the mind which creates. Sardar Patel put up with deprivations in his long years in jail fighting for independence. While doing so, he also shaped in his mind the manner in which he would build India when freedom came. And he did so admirably in the mold of Kautil, Ashok and Akbar. The 20th century has been the most disastrous in human history in social and political terms. Nearly 200 million men and women have died in military or political conflicts. Three great struggles spread over more than one half of the century, World Wars I and II, and the Cold War, made cannon fodder out of human beings. Many other battlefields, from anti-colonial movements to civil strife, contributed to this carnage. A large number of persons, men, women, and children, died in preventable famines and epidemics. Many brutalities, such as torture and female genital mutilation, have been widespread, and lack of compassion in dealing with human beings and nature have been a distinctive feature of the present century. And yet, as this century comes to a close and a new millennium begins, we clearly see the generation of three powerful forces, which, if properly nurtured, could make the coming century an era of peace and harmony in the world. These three forces are those of democracy, ecology, and culture. India is well placed to give a strength and meaning to the forces of democracy, ecology, and culture. As the world's largest democracy and a plural society in terms of ethnicity and religions, languages and art, climates and ecosystems, and a well-developed culture, India is unique. Surely, such a country is thus entitled to play a major role in the new millennium. I am fully conscious of the fact that it is a difficult task to do full justice to the subject I have chosen for this lecture. Nonetheless, in view of its importance for India and the world, I thought of sharing some of my reflections on this occasion. Let me begin with democracy. Democracy emerged in 1947 in a mood of triumph, despite the pervading gloom unleashed by the partition of India. There was an ennobling spirit in this mood, for democracy was associated with freedom, equality, and equity. Introduction of universal adult franchise for both men and women and assertion of secularism became core elements of the value system of the new republic. There were many who had doubted and have continued to do so until recently as to whether India could survive as a democracy. Several elections in the past, and the recent one, as well as the functioning of the democratic institutions in the country, have fully established that governance in India can only be in conformity with the people's will. It is not that democracy and secular values were unknown to India. Democracy had received some expression more than two millennia ago in Baishali in Bihar, like that of Athens in ancient Greece. Recent excavations have established that the Republic of the Lichwes had a common meeting place where assemblies were held at regular intervals to decide matters falling in this the public domain. In this assembly, both men and women participated, although the seating arrangements were separate. The Republic had been popularly referred as the Vision Territory, and it was a well-established institution in the 6th century BC. Buddha spoke very highly of this Republic and revealed its important features on which depended its strength and security in the following dialogue, and I quote. And the Blessed One said to him, Have you heard, Anand, that the Vijayans hold full and frequent public assemblies? Lord, so I have heard, replied he. So long, Anand, rejoined the Blessed One, as the Vijayans hold these full and frequent public assemblies, so long, May they be expected 
not to decline, but to prosper, unquote. Similarly, the inscriptions of Ashok in the third century BC clearly enjoined upon the people to respect different faiths and that it was the duty of the state to protect minorities. Several of our scriptures and folklores gave tremendous support to such concepts of pluralism. The type of democracy that arose in Athens in the 6th century BC was a precursor in terms of values and ethos of modern democracy. All 50,000 citizens of Athens spread over roughly 1,000 square miles had access to the council. The funeral oration of Pericles would always inspire the lovers of democracy. As history evolved, the forces of democracy received impetus by Magna Carta of 1215 and more by the French and American revolutions of the 18th century and events thereafter in Europe and in America. The removal of the colonial order in Asia and Africa in the present century further advanced the cause of democracy. The triumph of democracy over the totalitarian system in the closing decades of the 20th century certainly points to the fact that the people of East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and the states comprising the erstwhile Soviet Union could relate to something superior, notwithstanding the fact that the forces of a status quo tried to kill that ability in them. Today, for the first time in human history, more than one half of the world's population live in some form of democratic governance. The students of my generation frequently participated in or witnessed lively debates on Marxism versus Gandhism, democracy versus dictatorship, and between the development models of India, China, and the Soviet Union. It was widely believed that the Soviet Union and China grew faster than India because these two countries had jettisoned the basic democratic rights of the people. In recent years, the enormous success of the economies of several countries in East Asia in the 80s, which did not have full democratic forms, strengthened this belief further. More recently, however, scholars and social workers, economists and politicians are increasingly advocating that for sustainable development, a transparent and participatory democracy is essential. Fifty years of democratic experience provide us with two important lessons. The first is that democracy requires a continuing expansion of its processes to stay in front. The second relates to the critical area of governance to enable democracy to promote meaningful development. This is it is my belief that the Constitution of India would have been different in its character if India was not partitioned in 1947. The heavy reliance of the Constitution on the framework of the Government of India Act 1935 was a result of the need to preserve unity and integrity of the country in the aftermath of the partition. Otherwise, the Constitution would have reflected more of the spirit of the freedom movement and Gandhiji's philosophy of village republic, as well as several of our cultural and ecological concerns. There is no denying that Chapter 4 of the Constitution, dealing with directive principles of state policy, which was made non-justiciable, reflected some of these concerns. The amendment of the Constitution, establishing Panchayati Raj institutions in the villages in the year 1992, however, is an important further step in this direction. The elections to Lok Sabha, the state legislative assemblies, and several of our panchayats have not only created a large group of democratic leaders in the country, but have also strengthened the democratic processes themselves. The reservation of 33% of seats to women in Panchayati Raj is a welcome step, and this experiment in India would be of particular relevance to the global community. We have to ensure in coming years that elections are held to the Panchayati Raj institutions all over the country, and that sufficient powers are delegated to them to manage primary and secondary schools, primary health centers, and development and revenue offices. However, in a job-starved society, the temptations among Panchayati Raj leaders to offer employment in Panchayat office to their supporters would need to be registered. 
Such a tendency would commit the financial resources of the panchayats to salaries of grade C and D staff, and thus divert the developmental capacity of the panchayats to provide infrastructure and services in the village. A large number of estates are already using their entire revenue resources on meeting salaries and pensions of their employees at the cost of development works. The need, therefore, is to strike a balance in the powers to be delegated to the Panjati Raj institutions to allow them to take decisions on local issues which can combine more responsive and efficient local governance with prudence in financial management while restraining their more profligate tendencies. In a country with 4,694 ethnic groups with different economic, social, and religious practices, it is only to be expected that leaders would soon draw upon their traditional constituencies in seeking political support. As is well known, the social milieu of our traditional society was tied in relationship of the subordination and superordination to each other, and thus cementing an intentionally hierarchical order. Such a society was also characterized by profound inequities and multi-layered formal and informal exploitation mechanisms. The Dalits and the Adivasis, the backward classes, the minorities and the women suffered greatly under this order. The advent of democracy and adult franchise under the Constitution gave a severe blow to this exploitative system. The land reforms, though inadequate, the community development programs and rural employment schemes and, and industrialization provided meaningful opportunities to the people and successfully challenged the very basis of this cruelty. The liberation of Dalits from the control of the upper castes is one of the greatest achievements of our liberal democracy. This the demographic expansion the of the middle class, recording. both in urban and rural areas, is another positive feature. Another significant development relates to the fact that the social background of ruling elites as well as major political parties has undergone changes in several states as well as at the center. Such changes have been negotiated through the mechanism of democracy without any exceptionally violent alteration in the content or procedures of the business of governance and orderly political processes. Our experience has clearly shown that the governmental response to people's problems at times is directly related to the pressure that people put on the system. The exercise of franchise rights, as well as the role of the press, make a real difference to the quality of response of an administration. It has been our experience that while we had series of famines in the first half of the 20th century, there had been none in democratic India. We have witnessed a profound value shift in the mindset of the people in India over the years. The poor are no longer blaming fate for their living conditions, nor do they believe in avatars. Today, they are trying hard and struggling to change their environment. It is for the system to reach them with a helping hand. It is our experience that whenever in India, policies to increase growth and development of human resources and infrastructure have been efficiently combined, poverty diminished rapidly, and social indicators improved. Another aspect of the deepening of democratic process relates to the civil society. Powerful civil society at the village or town level can play an important role, not only in strengthening the resolve of the poor to fight for the betterment of their conditions, but also in making the administrative system more responsive to the needs of the poor. Mahatma Gandhi, more than anybody else in this century, showed that the poor have the capacity to alter their lives and also their environment. He socialized courage and generated a movement that ejected the colonial power from India. His work for emancipation of poverty, basic education, self-sufficiency in food, shelter and clothing, and for keeping the village ecologically sound need to be carried forward. The crucial issue is of governance. It had been my good fortune to work with early leaders of the Republic, both in Assam and at the center, and also with subsequent generation of leaders. One has come across a large number of persons of integrity and vision imbued with a deep sense of public service. 
In contemporary times, however, the spirit of service of the early republic, both in political leadership and in higher civil service, is somewhat missing. One sees with pain that several of our leaders, in command of different levels of governance, are often busy either promising or politicking, but not governing. There is lack of conviction and vigor among many of them to improve the conditions in the country in the area of the responsibility. Let me say a word about the higher rank of civil service, because it is so essential to the functioning of government. One of the key problems is that civil servants are overly engaged in relentless gossip about transfers and postings, and in anticipating the wishes of their political masters. There seems little desire to improve and change the procedures which cause delay. A pernicious consequence of this phenomenon is frequent transfer of key functionaries like secretaries to government of India, chief secretaries and DGPs of inner states, district magistrates and superintendents of police and districts, and so on. There is an imperative need to give fixed tenures to key functionaries and make them accountable for their performance and also to encourage innovations among civil servants. Among permanent civil servants at decision-making levels, there is an attitudinal problem as well. Decision-making and monitoring authority are vested in officials above the age group of 45 in most of the departments. There is in them a psyche of bond prest at that age, which inhibits them from being aggressive. Many times, I have myself felt tempted in this way. A conscious effort is needed to shake off this attitude if results are to be achieved. There is also a dangerous nexus between politicians, civil servants, and businessmen for private gains. This can be broken only when investigation agencies show rare boldness to unearth the wrongdoings of their own senior colleagues and political masters. Towards this, both the civil society and the judiciary have to support and encourage these agencies. Whether it is nexalite violence in Adilabad in Andhra Pradesh, or caste violence in Jahanabad in Bihar, or ethnic conflict in Kokrajar in Assam, the problem needs to be seen from a local perspective. We find that conflict management capacity of the local institutions and local society are severely constricted compared to the magnitude of the problem. The interventionist capacity of the state and the center does not yield adequate results for lack of adequate capacities at the local level. We need to increase the capacities at local level and use optimally the resources that are available. Democratic governance, notwithstanding its intrinsic value, will not by itself sustain and promote people's aspirations. We have therefore to implement the suggestions listed above and that will help ensure a positive future, both for democratic institutions and our people. Our sages and scholars, more than two millennia ago, had conceived the world as a family and had proclaimed that the earth is my mother and I am a child of the world. Mata bhumi putro aham prithibya. To them, soil, river, trees, cattle, and fire were sacred. In their perception, human destiny was inextricably linked with environment and conditioned by it. During the last 50 years, however, we have altered our natural landscape in decisive ways, replacing trees, shrubs, and grasses with roads and buildings, dams and canals, townships, and industrial structures. Notwithstanding our cultural tradition of according sacred status to our rivers like Jamuna and Ganga, we did not set up effluent plants for our industrial units and allowed the waste to directly flow into them. Similarly, the urban centers and the small manufacturing units were allowed to freely emit sewage and other wastes to rivers. As a result, the Jamuna has already been converted into a dirty nala and the Ganga has been heavily polluted. The condition of and treatment meted out to other rivers and wetlands is somewhat similar. The magnitude of problems with respect to drinking water and sanitation facilities, soil maintenance, biodiversity conservation, and purity of air is such that it needs immediate attention. India is one of the 12 
mega biodiversity regions in the world, and our biogeographic zones present a broad, broad range of the world's ecosystem. India this provides all India habitat to 6% of the world's plant species, 8% of the world's mammals, and 13% of the world's bird species. India is one of the oldest and largest agricultural societies, and it has an impressive diversity of crops, species, and forests. India has more than 25,000 plant species of important medicinal value. Experts believe that once sophisticated genetic engineering technologies are developed in the country or made available to us by advanced technology centers of the world, it would be possible for India to become a major exporter of cosmetics, medicinal drugs, and textile dyeing materials. Our scientists are working in this field and they have made significant progress. Notwithstanding the UN Convention on Biodiversity Conservation, providing for transfer of technology from advanced countries to the developing countries, no significant progress has been made in this direction, as this would adversely affect the share of the advanced countries in the world trade of cosmetics and drugs. We should work hard to alter the situation in our favor, as well as those of biodiversity-rich developing countries. The forest cover has considerably depleted with the rapid growth in population and industrial activities since 1947. The forests currently cover less than 20% of the country's geographical area against the target of 33% enshrined in our national forest policy. Fuel wood is still the most important form of household fuel in rural and urban areas and makes a heavy demand on our forest resources. India's forests are also subjected to pressure from logging to foot the demand for timber and pulp industries and urban consumers. The Forest Conservation Act 1980 is a landmark legislation in conserving forest this wealth in the country. Efforts have been made in some parts of the country, most glaringly in Arunachal Pradesh, which is one of, the, which is one of India's richest evergreen forest and biodiversity regions to bypass the stringent provisions of law in the name of development. The Supreme Court has rightly intervened to ensure conservation of forests in Arunachal Pradesh and elsewhere in the country. The agricultural base of the Indian economy is dependent heavily on the nation's surface and ground water resources, as also of monsoon. The problems of the depleting water tables is a major challenge. About 21% of the rural population and 15% of the urban population still lack access to clean drinking water. Besides, women in many areas spend up to eight hours a day just to collect water. A large percent of the population do not have access to proper sanitation facilities. We have lost a lot of topsoil. The ever-increasing dumping of sewage and industrial wastes into the coastal waters is destroying the fishing industries and marine life is constantly being threatened. Our cities are characterized by high levels of air pollution due to poorly maintained vehicles, fuel burning, and industrial activities. Our development policies have also caused hardships to people. Terming dams and power stations, temples of modern India, we called on tribals and pigeons to sacrifice in larger national interest. Sacrifice they did. When their lands were submerged under dams, they received a pittance in compensation. Paper mills were granted bamboo at throwaway prices, which they promptly exhausted, switching to eucalyptus when bamboo was no longer available. But lakhs of rural artisans dependent on bamboo had no such option and were turned into ecological refugees. No serious effort was made to educate or impart employment skills to them. Indeed, development had quickly been equated to channelizing nation's resources to a narrow elite of powerful landowners and urbanites in the organized industries and services sectors. These resource flows were driven by larger-scale state-sponsored subsidies. This created a system of highly inefficient resource use, a system that led to resource exhaustion even as it fostered social inequities and regional imbalances. We cannot afford to continue like this. Happily, both the government and the people are responding to these challenges. In March 1973, 
women of Garhwal Himalayas hugged ash trees to save them from the acts of contractors' men launching the famous Chipko movement. Around the same time, many Kuki and Mijo villages revived their traditions of protecting the forest, encircling their habitations, while villagers in the hills of Karnataka were spontaneously setting up forest protection committees. These winds of change were steadying up urban India too. So, in the now famous Arabadi experiment in West Bengal, it was a forest officer who in 1973 promoted village forest committees. In 1972, the government of India promulgated a Wildlife Protection Act and in the very next year launched the Project Tiger. The popular science movement, Kerala Sastra Sahit Parishad, KSSP, initiated serious examination of environmental issues. They have gone on to spearhead a mass literacy drive and panchayat level resource mapping. This resource mapping program involves all citizens in looking at how they are living, how they are treating the environment, and how they should direct development. The state of Kerala has now taken the further progressive step of handing over decision-making relating to the use of 40% of the development funds to the gram panchayats. And gram panchayats are being encouraged to do so in our informed fashion on the basis of exercises like panchayat-level resource mapping. There has been good work in several parts of the country to increase the tree cover through development of forests, plantations, natural generation programs on the one hand, and conservation of traditional forests. In the northeast, I had the occasion to see some of the sacred groves in Meghalaya, which are the best representatives of tropical, subtropical vegetation. These forests are sacred as it has both grown and been preserved under people's belief system. These sacred groves are traditionally managed by their families or clans and are very rich in floral and faunal diversity. Unfortunately, these sacred groves are increasingly coming under threat, both on account of demography and change in belief systems. However, a visit to these sacred groves gives one the feel of the attachment of the tribal society to groves. In Mizoram, one was impressed by the manner in which the youth, under the banner of the Young Mijo Association, are working in afforestation and wildlife preservation activities. I also had the opportunity to pay a visit to Ilam Bazar Forest Village near Shanti Niketan in West Bengal, where the tribal villagers, under the energetic leadership of a Muslim youth, have succeeded in transforming the attitude of the people and with resulting regeneration of forest wealth. The village of Halkar near Kumta on Karnataka coast has done an excellent job in forest management. They have also shown tremendous resolution in the face of arbitrary government orders. For instance, when in the late 60s, their village forest committee was arbitrarily dissolved by the state forest department, this they fought a legal battle for its reinstatement recording. and succeeded in doing so after nearly a lapse of 20 years. Success stories abound in several other states of India but this is only a small part of efforts required. The need is to spread this message with a view to replicate them. Our experience has shown that environment awareness is an area that needs constant attention of the government, the private sector, the NGOs, and the concerned citizens. A decade ago, I had the pleasure to watch the school-going children participate in a nationwide painting competition program on environment awareness. I was surprised to see both the level of awareness and the quality of paintings. Several of the paintings of our young children were adjusted to be of world standards by the United Nations Environmental Program. There is need to continually involve the students as well as the professionals in creative efforts that would give them deep understanding and fashioning of development programs, keeping in view the ecological concerns. The school children in particular would need to be made aware of both their natural and cultural heritage in their locality, rather than to be aware of only such aspects of our heritage which are of national or global significance. This would enable them to see these places in a new perspective, which in turn would create a degree of attachment as well as concern, and that would be the greatest source of guarantee for their conservation and upkeep. The task of integrating environmental concerns in our development programs is not always such a complex phenomenon as is widely believed. The success in implementation of development programs would invariably depend upon people's cooperation, and that would be forthcoming more easily if the development projects are sensitive 
to the purity of soil, forests, air, and water. The wise use of natural resources alone would generate and guarantee sustainable development. The villagers are steeped in the Indian culture of reverence for nature. It is this culture that is responsible for the rich network of banyan, people, and other trees that continues to clothe our undoubtedly much devastated rural landscape. The need to improve access of our managers to clean technology in execution of industrial projects is another area of concern and would have a direct bearing on purity of air and water resources and optimal use of energy resources. The future of ecological restoration lies both in efficacy of the legal system and belief in shared values. A dedicated cadre of civil servants and police personnel supported by the local leadership would ensure that, these, that those indulging in destruction of forests and wildlife trade would be punished under law. But power of law by itself cannot be a reliable guide to ecological order. The rule of law inhibits the capacity of poachers and traders to indulge in wanton destruction of forests and illegal trade in trees and wildlife. We need a democratic culture of sharing and informing between people and the government. We must also draw upon our religious and spiritual strength that favors conservation and also our rich history of ecological movements and the traditions of ecological prudence among several of our ethnic communities. Only then we can hope to vanquish the forces of environmental destruction. The third area on which I would like to dwell is culture. What is India's culture? This is a question that cannot be easily answered. And yet India's culture, which blossomed more than three millennia ago, has given successive generations of Indians a worldview, a value system, and a way of life which has been retained with remarkable continuity. This despite the passage of time, repeated foreign invasions, enormous growth in population, and expansion in human consciousness. It gives to Indians, recording. as well as to people of Indian origin, a unique personality today, as it has done in the past. By the year AD 1, India was a highly developed culture. The achievements in the realm of literature, art, dance and drama, poetry, economy, astronomy and religion before the beginning of the Christian era have continued to influence its people during the last two millennia. India, Egypt, Iraq, Greece and China have been recognized as the five major cradles of human civilization. The ancient civilization of India, however, differs from the others in that its traditions have remained intact to the present day. In this respect, it is like China. In fact, both in India and China can claim to have the oldest continuous cultural traditions in the world. Every student of India's culture has found India both fascinating and baffling with its multiplicity of languages and dialects, gods and goddesses, values and beliefs, customs and practices, sensuality and asceticism. One is enchanted with high levels of thinking among Indian rishis and arhats, the imagination as well as earthiness of painters and poets, the achievements of sculptors and architects, musicians and dancers, weavers and artisans. Both the market and the state have played pioneering roles in the promotion of art and culture in India's ageless history. During the last 50 years, the policies pursued by the government of India have facilitated cultural progress under a guiding philosophy that it is not for the state to guide culture, but only to provide an environment which would facilitate dialogue among creative persons and encourage freedom of their expression. We in India are fortunate to have had leaders and creative persons like Mahatma Gandhi, Rabindranath Tagore, Jawaharlal Nehru, Sri Aurobindo, Satyajit Ray, Ravi Shankar, Maulana Ajad, Rukmini Dev, Devi Arundel, Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay, Amrita Sergal, Lata Mangeshkar, Bismillah Khan, many others to illuminate our political and cultural world. The leaders of the early republic were not only freedom fighters and persons of vision, but also individuals of distinction in the realm of culture. One of the unique things about India is that it possesses a developed culture, but not yet a developed economy. This cultural status is of a special relevance today within a world that had changed substantially after the end of the World War, after the end of the Cold War, and radically since 1991. It is now widely assumed that the status of a country will be determined not by its military arsenal, 
but by the power of its economy, which in turn has come to mean that countries with sophisticated technology and the largest share of world trade will be the most powerful and important. I am not one of those who overlook, overlook the importance of market forces or world trade or who ignore military arsenals as factors in international politics. However, I do believe that in the future, culture will be an important variable along with market and trade in determining the position of a country within the community of nations. This aspect needs to be kept in view, not only by our leaders in the arenas of culture, security, and trade, but also by our politicians, planners, civil servants, the media, and the academic world. It is in this context that India has to consciously adopt a policy of placing culture at the center of things to create an environment that encourages self-expression by individuals and communities. Pride in India, India's culture, is a concomitant of this, but we must realize that we cannot be treated differentially by others simply because this of the fact that our ancestors were great recording. people. In a past publication, I argued that culture is power. I then defined culture as follows, quote, as expressed through language and art, philosophy and religion, education and science, films and newspapers, radio and television, social habits and customs, political institutions and economic organizations, culture heightens the skills of an individual and a society in its totality in all walks of life because it is by culture that a man or society gets an insight into the whole. Culture includes not only art, music, dance and drama, but a whole way of life. In, 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 in fact, culture is Sanskriti or a process of refinement. It is in this broader sense that culture has to be viewed." Unquote. A number of scholars and civil servants told me that I had misused the word culture. I still hold to my opinion, because for me the term culture in its most comprehensive sense refers to the diverse creative activities of a people, to literature, to the visual and performing arts, and to various forms of artistic self-expression by the individual or by communities. These activities give a sense of purpose to human existence and at the same time provide the reflective pause and a spiritual energy so essential to the maturing of a good society. Culture is a dynamic variable, enormously potent and influential. When it is articulated in a manner aimed at achieving an objective, it releases the dormant energies of a community. It is thus capable, it is thus comparable to energy and power and has a similar place vis-a-vis -vis development programs. India's culture is deeply rooted in an age-old pluralistic ethos providing creative expression, value sustenance, and belief patterns to the thousands of communities which constitute contemporary Indian society. Among the factors that have contributed to the continuity and richness of our culture, the most important one is our plural character, ideas, languages, forms of worship, architecture, agricultural practices, dress, handicrafts, medicine, industry, science, and instruments of production and consumption. The democratization of our polity has sharpened the consciousness of each ethnic group within India's multi-ethnic state. They often seek to gain control of state powers as a means of securing for itself a larger share of income and wealth. In this scenario, the need for harmony and peace among ethnic groups has become crucial. The answer lies in secular and fair policies in respect of rights of land, employment, economic benefits, education, use of language, political representation, and freedom of religion. The most durable way is for the state to continue the policy pursued during the freedom struggle, which was to create a sense of the nation as a civic community based upon some shared cultural consciousness. Such a sense of community is best achieved if the concept of nation is freed from connotations of ethnic and religious exclusivity. One of the virtues of a plural culture is that it encourages us to understand and value our own family traditions, our own ethnic and cultural practices, yet also to stand outside these and be able and willing to judge them. In fact, the approach to culture in India must positively encourage regional diversity and not just tolerate it. No region or group should have the feeling of a threat of being swamped. There are no majority and minority cultures. The smallest unit 
had its contribution to make to the enrichment of the national sum total and must be respected. It is not possible in our development paradigm to support the concept of culture extending apart from social life. Culture has to be an active process in this the movement of history. This is Radio Archives recording. The scale, diversity, and historical depth of our heritage in terms of monuments, forms of art, music, dance, and drama, as well as manuscripts, requires financial support of a massive nature and an efficient, sensitive administrative infrastructure. Unfortunately, funding at such a level is not available. The administrative arrangements are inadequate, and there is an acute shortage of good culture managers in the country. We have to involve our people and also to manage our institutions in a better fashion. It is with this background that it was decided by the government of India to set up the National Culture Fund. Donations to the fund are exempted from income tax to attract the corporate sector and business houses it has been provided that while making donations to the fund, it would be possible for a donor to designate a project along with any specific location aspect for funding and also an agency for the execution of the project subject to general policy guidelines and rules in this behalf. The authorities of the fund will respect the choice of the donor to the extent possible. The National Culture Fund launched in March 1997 is expected to become a new cultural center a nexus of invention and creativity. This will also open the area of cooperation and participation of the local community in the decision-making process as well as in implementation of programs. Such an approach will also help not only in the utilization of scientific skills and technical knowledge, but will combine this with local knowledge and traditions which form an integral part of India's intellectual legacy. This is essential as the efforts for, of protection can only be ensured within a social order that is profoundly aware and proud of its individual this and collective responsibility. There is need to strengthen the managerial capabilities of various cultural organizations. The task of service to heritage sites, archival materials, museums and art centers, libraries and anthropological research have all suffered for want of organized all India services. It would therefore be necessary for the government to move toward the institution of an Indian archaeological service, an Indian archival service, an Indian museum and art service, an Indian anthropological service, and an Indian library service. The creation of these service structures could go a long way in boosting the morale of employees in these organizations, improving their promotion prospects, and serving the wider cause of the augmentation of efficiency in these fields of cultural pursuit. It is the national government's policy to move in the direction of establishing museums and cultural centers at the district level. Efforts are being made to strengthen library and net information networks at the grassroots level and to take full advantage of the new leadership, particularly among women, that is emerging as a result of the new Panchayati Raj democracy. The requirement of funds and also of managerial cadres is massive, and the commercial sector's response to come to the help of the state as a partner in these areas would be most welcome. Business houses are, and corporate bodies are not only likely to contribute to the National Culture Fund, but can also be expected to construct and even manage museums and culture theaters. We must not forget that to live without a cultural memory is not to live at all. Our cultural memory is our coherence, our reason, our feeling, and even our action. As we have seen, our different ethnic this groups have at different periods of their history recording. found solutions to their problems, and their culture has helped them resolve their crisis. We are not without answers to our concurrent concerns. In the long history of Indian culture, two personalities, Gautam Buddha and Mahatma Gandhi, stand out as world figures. If their message of peace and nonviolence are properly harmonized with the social and economic realities of our life and times, it seems to have the potential to avert any future class among civilizations and also to strengthen the forces of democracy, ecology, and culture. In the current global crisis of strife and violence, ethnic unrest and ceaseless materialism 
ecological erosions and overstretched resources. Mahatma Gandhi offers a human and humanizing alternative in which there would be enough for everybody's needs but not for everybody's greed. A uniform pattern of development in whatever field has to make way for alternative and multiple patterns. The Gandhian approach is a self-questioning, self-critical one which at another level connects with the Buddhist approach as well, which is exemplified in the axiom, Appa Dipo Bhavo, be a lamp unto yourself. The Polish poet and Nobel laureate, Mislava Sijambroska, in her poem, The Century's Decline, has raised a very pertinent question, and I quote, how should we live? Someone asked me in a later, I had meant to ask him the same question, unquote. India may well provide a comprehensive answer to the question, how should we live? In providing that answer, the cultural attainments that flowered in India well before the Christian era would be as relevant as those of the period of the freedom struggle as well as the achievements and lessons of the second half of the 20th century. India may reasonably expect to provide a message as well as an example in asserting that happiness lies in leading a simpler life, a life with the family and within the community and a life of sharing with others. The growing faith, of, the growing faith in democracy as a form of governance, conservation of ecology and preservation of the environment and cultural pluralism as a way of living are integral parts of India's common future. As forces of democracy, ecology, and culture interact and support each other, many effects of value and substance would result and enrich us. It is this confluence of democracy, ecology, and culture that would determine the destiny of not only one billion Indians, but also of the world. There is an intrinsic relationship between culture and democracy. Culture, through its creative activities, gives a sense of purpose to human existence. It embodies values that bind the society together, while democracy provides instrumentalities for implementation of governance and development, culture gives necessary light. In fact, culture is a kind of lens through which we are capable of knowing and remembering the past, that is our heritage. It is capable of revealing the broader horizons of the past and illuminating the future, not in detail, of course, but at least showing the direction in which the society is moving. Both democracy and culture, in their finest expressions, support each other. In my view, the relationship between democracy, in my view, the relationship between culture and ecology exists at a deeper level in our heritage and this could be meant to operate in our personal life recording. and in planning and implementation of developmental programs. The role of an artist is to create a sense of reverence and beauty among the people for their environment. A work of art should inspire people, help them to see beauty in nature, and recognize beauty in themselves and in all human endeavors. Art has essentially been an inherent human technology for expressing consciousness in matter. Artists have created objects, rituals, and environments not only for subjective expression, but also as homage to the creator, to ensure harmony with nature, and to promote the well-being of nature itself. According to the traditional Indian view, art is a living process. In this thought process, trees are sacred, earth is sacred, water is sacred, and above all, the environment is sacred. It would seem that the threat to the environment through industrialization and urbanization could also at the same time pose a threat to culture. The answer lies in the realization that there is a close relationship between a spiritual, cultural, social, and economic problems of a community. The new development paradigm must therefore be holistic and consistent with the spiritual traditions of the people. The belief systems of most of our Adivasis and believers in various religious faiths hold the natural objects as sacred. Consequently, the culture and lifestyles that evolved treated nature as sacred and did not exploit the natural resources without concern for their sustainability. 
The sustainable development philosophy therefore demands that the new paradigm of development must take social, cultural, and spiritual values of a society into account for meaningful progress, a confluence too long neglected. The information technology, the information explosion taking place in the world today is influencing young minds. The heritage of the past, the bitter experience of violence, and the global sharing of information about violence and ugliness are helping in the emergence of a new mindset. The concerns for ecology, human rights, democracy, and pluralism should be sharpened by the sharing of information. The artists can help in learning the art of living and of relating to people, to nature and the environment, which can provide satisfactory inputs towards a more contented existence. Democracy needs social stability to succeed in its goals. The greatest threat to social stability emanates from unemployment and poverty. When we look at the world, we find that poverty and unemployment is at low level only in countries where people are educated and healthy. Poor health and illiteracy are major sources of poverty and unemployment. This is also our own development experience. The success of democracy in India is therefore dependent upon how efficiently and how rapidly we tackle the problems relating to, to, uh, relating to literacy and healthcare. The problems are acute in UP, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, and Odisha, and we have to f take firm initiatives in respect of these states. The need is for rapid expansion and a strengthening of primary and sec secondary schools and primary health centers. Effective health programs are needed to complement education in raising the productivity of labor to reduce poverty. We have to place effective management of schools and health centers. And how rapidly we tackle the problems relating to, to, relating to literacy and health care. The problems are acute in UP, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan and Urissa, and we have to f take firm initiatives in respect this of these states. All India Radio Archives recording. The need is for rapid expansion and a strengthening of primary and sec secondary schools and primary health centers. Effective health programs are needed to complement education in raising the productivity of labor to reduce poverty. We have to place effective management of schools and health centers and all the aspects related thereto at the center of our work in government as well as in civil society. Towards this goal, we must utilize synergies available in our society. The government, the government must take the lead to involve NGOs, faith organizations, and the private sector in this work. District region-based strategies should be developed, and responsibilities should be clearly demarcated among organizations and powers delegated. In view of the magnitude of the task associated with construction of schools, recruitment and training of teachers, finalization of the curriculum of studies, and holding of examinations, we should associate cultural bodies and faith organizations like caste and religious societies in this work. While the government should have full control over recruitment and training of teachers, course curriculum and examinations, funds and school buildings, and day-to-day -day control over teachers and staff could be entrusted to these voluntary organizations acting in concern with the local panchayat and the district officer. The superannuated public servants should be engaged as school teachers up to the age of 65 after interview and willingness test. We have a vast array of group C and D employees, and their productivity in offices is extremely low, and at times they only impede work. They could be shifted to schools and health centers if they are so willing and proficient. Otherwise, over a period of time, all these posts could be transferred to schools and hospitals. It is my belief that complete eradication of illiteracy in a short this period is, is only possible if we succeed in perceiving it as a cultural challenge. This requires explosion in creative energies of the Indian middle class, a willingness and determination on the part of political leadership to select teachers on merit and give them such training and salaries in order that they can ensure a generation jump of students, particularly living in rural areas, as they are lagging behind their urban counterparts in computer and internet education. During the freedom movement, thousands of schools were set up as this work became the pride of a village and or a community. There is a growing feeling in the world that India is performing below its potential and that problems before the country are enormous. 
This is indeed true. We have a long way to go in the areas of democracy, ecology, and even in culture. There is, however, no need to be apologetic. The list of India's achievements in the past and during the last 50 years are impressive. We can reasonably take pride in the fact that during the period of recorded global history of the past 2,500 years, India was a major power for 1,300 years, roughly up to 8th century, and became again a major power for over a period of 100 years during the Mughal rule. We developed rational traditions in this country, as this was a country in which some of the earliest steps in algebra, geometry and astronomy were taken, where the decimal system emerged, where early philosophy, secular as well as, well as religious, achieved exceptional sophistication, where people invented games like chase, pioneered sex education, and began the first systematic study of political economy. The Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Upanishad, and the Bhagavad Gita, the finest works of art and sculpture of Ajanta and Elora, and various Buddhist shrines, the best universities of the world of that time, such Nalanda and Vikramsila, are achievements that should give us pride in our heritage. In recent years, it has been possible for us to create a large pool of technical and scientific talent, eradicate famine, and ensure democratic functioning in our society. In fact, the three organs of the government, namely the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary, are functioning in a manner that does not allow authoritarian groups or regimes to emerge in the name of democracy. The world looks to India with respect for the manner in which we have permitted and practiced a plural society. Our experience in turn should make us more concerned about our minorities and the weaker sections of our society. We must realize that only a democratic, secular India will command the trust not only of our own people, but also of the world. The end of colonialism and the end of communism are the two seminal landmarks of the century. This double demise shifted the determinants of global status away from the military might and towards market. But the supremacy of the market may not be long lived unless the spiritualization of market takes place. This is, of course, somewhat utopian. But as a barometer of international influence, the market in the long run will surely not be everlasting. It could well be replaced by another index composed of democracy, ecology, and culture. As the new millennium unfolds, nations which are strong in these elements are likely to advance in the index of global importance. In this mix, culture has a special place. The market and its cohorts, technology and multilateral, multinational organizations presently dominate. But this dominance will lead directly to a psychologically and physically unbalanced situation, creating a harsh inverse which will breed self-destructive societies and individuals. The ethics, the balance, and the restraints of democracy and ecology are required to temper this bleak this prospect. Is all and Radio even that is not Only culture can provide the human and spiritual dimensions which could restrain the worst of the techno-market techno imperatives and offer the conditioning ethos for greatness. India's contribution to world culture, its rich biodiversity and great pluralism have generated all fascination and respect. In 1915, Anand Kentis Kumarasamy summed up the position when he wrote, and I quote, Each race contributes something essential to the world's civilization in the course of its own self-expression. The essential contribution of India is simply her Indianness. Her great humiliation would be to substitute or to have substituted for this own character, Subhav, a cosmopolitan veneer, for then, indeed, she must come before the world empty-handed." The developments in India, particularly since 1947, has given us confidence that in the new millennium, India will not face the world empty-handed. That she will continue to justify Iqbal's dictum that there is something that does not allow the Indian continuum to perish. The locus of power in the 21st century may shift to Asia. The economic strength of India will no doubt increase. A rapid economic growth at a rate of 10% or more for the next 10 to 15 years will help India to achieve world respect in the same manner as it has done to China. This is both possible and likely. But one is not sure that India, like the USA and China, 
will emerge as a great world economic power having a decisive say in world market notwithstanding the various shortcomings and failures of india indian culture has continued to provide a distinct personality to indians as well as to the people of indian origin in different lands one can be reasonably certain that the growing role of creative persons in india's society polity and economy will ensure that india retains this personality and contribute to the base in which democratic institutions ecological concerns and our rich traditions will support each other and thus give india a unique status in the world of tomorrow let me conclude ladies and gentlemen with homage to the memory of sardar on his 75th birthday sardar told his friends admirers and followers and i quote him i have reached an age when it is my right to take rest but the heart is yearning to utilize the time that is still left to me in the service of my country in these critical days it is my earnest wish to see india a stable a strong prosperous and free from danger and i wish to dedicate the rest of my life to that sacred task unquote sardar worked till the last day of his life towards this task in reflecting about his work i am reminded of rabindranath tagore's famous poem god honors me when i work god and the people of india have really honored sardar while he was alive and it is my belief that they continue to do so we have joined this evening in our own humble way in that enduring act of honoring sardar thank you